announcement. So there we go. Two. So these past few weeks, you know, you've seen us kind of focus on that contrast that Jesus gave us in the, in the parables. Um, and everything is centered, as you can see from the video, around the number two. So the first week we had the two builders where you had the two different foundations and the contrast between building a house on the foundation of rock versus the foundation of sand. Um, and just how that's a, an analogy to our faith and how we build our faith on Christ as our foundation and those storms that come will not shake us. Um, when, he is, when he is the rock, when he is our foundation, uh, we're not going to be wavering. We won't waver in the storms. Next, we had the, the two neighbors. And with the two neighbors, you saw uh, one neighbor who showed mercy and, was, and helped. You, showed, you saw the other neighbor who was in need of help. And Jesus, uh, appropriately in the end, just wraps it up and says, Now, go forth, go out there and take care of these people. Help those around you. Which is a great, I mean, it's the same statement we have um, that I see kind of pulsing through our church um, and the churches around us today. And then last week we saw the two treasures, and we were given kind of an example of the vigor that we should have internally when we, when we pursue our relationship with Christ. And we are, we are able to see heaven as a gift so valuable uh, that, we can, that we should be willing to, to put down all of our earthly treasures um, for that one goal, that one, that one treasure in heaven. It's a great exchange, great exchange to me. So uh, before we go into this week, um, let's just take a second and pray. Lord, we, we just thank you that you care to be in uh, communication with us, that you gave us these stories, uh, and that you want to use our lives as a story to tell your love uh, to the world around us. We just thank you, Father. Um, thank you that you love us. Amen. So you see today, today is going to be about uh, the, the story of the two, uh, the tax collectors, or the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the contrast that you see in, in their lives. Now, as Matt has been saying for the past few weeks, Jesus uses parables as a way to kind of bring out that contrast. Uh, you know, sometimes it's been contrast in the, the different lives of two people. Sometimes it's been a, a contrast of just two spiritual principles. Um, but he used these stories to kind of illustrate uh, a moral point there. And there, you look through the Bible and you see many different ways that... Uh, different forms of communication that were used uh, in a written form. You see poems, you see sermons, you see actual letters from uh, person to person. You see apocalyptic visions, even. Uh, and then you see sprinkled throughout all of these examples um, just the use of, of figures of speech and pictures to kind of bring the stories to life. And that's really kind of what, what a parable is, uh, bringing a story uh, to life, personalizing it. For the, and contextualizing it for the people around them. So, you know, based upon kind of what you see in the New Testament, you know, the, the parable was really kind of Jesus's go-to method uh, of teaching. Some of the most powerful things and the things we remember most about Jesus uh, were, were the parables that he taught. He created these, these stories uh, that would resonate, not just with the, the person that he was talking to right then, but um, they still resonate with us today. Um, and that's what this whole series is about, is just bringing, you know, breathing new life into those stories. So as you heard in the verses that Tracy read, today we're just going to, we're going to look at the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, just the, how he, Jesus took these two dissimilar people and um, used them to kind of bring that contrast. 
Now, a Pharisee was kind of a, it was a highly respected religious leader in that day. They had a they had a life that was kind of built around following the letter of the law to a T. Um, it's what they were all about. Everybody knew that, both from their external presence, the way they dressed, the way they presented themselves, the way they spoke, everything. Um, everybody knew, you know, you could you could identify a Pharisee within a group uh, by dress, by action, and certainly by speech. Um, so they were they were certainly feared and respected to a degree. I wouldn't say there was so much love necessarily. Uh, they certainly, you know, with the the way that they used their words and presented themselves so strongly, it certainly created division um, within certain people. But you know, they they weren't the priests either. They were a second, you know, secondary level kind of beneath them. I think if you kind of kind of looked at the church today, a Pharisee would be equated to like almost an, an extremely devoted, um, you know, just church attendee, uh, almost maybe borderlining on fanatical. Just somebody that has that zeal that always wants to be out there doing doing things, and sometimes maybe goes a little too far into the the, the side of offending people by being forceful uh, with their presentation. That's um, probably closer to what it could look like today. So, in Christ in Christ setting in that time uh, time wise, and also today, these people would be your kind of your cultural behavior influencers within a church. So they had a very significant role because people looked upon them as kind of the, you know, the leaders um, within, the, within the group. And of the, the known Jewish leadership groups between the Essenes, the Sadducees, and um, the Zealots, the Pharisees were really the ones that, that people could probably relate to the closest. Um, and I say that because they had a life that people probably looked at them and thought, you know what, if I... If I really worked hard enough and I really just dedicated myself, I could be like that guy. Uh, there were things in the, in the life of the other uh, Jewish groups that people probably didn't connect with as, as easily. But certainly there, there were some people that probably looked at the Pharisees and thought, you know, I could really work my way up to that level. Um, if I wanted to, you know, perform, I wanted to dress, I wanted to act like that, I might be able to do that. So people, kind of, you know, they were probably the closest that people could relate to. The, the New Testament, you'll see quite a few stories about the Pharisees. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't, aren't too flattering uh, in terms of how they're, they're portrayed. Uh, you know, you look in, in the book of Matthew, and there's, there's several different way, uh, ways that the, the Pharisee is shown. In chapter 7, we see it, that Jesus shows through multiple parables and examples that they relied kind of on, on their own man-made traditions and ways that things that they thought were important instead of um, relying on, on God and, and the Bible for their actual religion. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, it kind of it depicts them as um, judges. You know, they, they took an interpretations of outward appearance and almost drew false accusations about, um, about people. In the same section, you see Jesus shows us that they do not necessarily keep the Ten Commandments that they think they hold so tightly to, that they're really, they kind of base themselves on, um, that they do have some, some flaws, and Jesus, Jesus points that out. And in chapter 23, verses 20, 27 in Matthew, uh, it shows us again that their actions are primarily interested in this external presentation of what they believe to be proper representation of the Bible and not necessarily... Um, not necessarily interested in that, that clean heart. So here in Luke today, we see them, them painted as persons that trust in themselves. Again, in that same in, internal 
uh, that ex- external action instead of a, a personal pursuit of holiness and the grace of God. So the stage is set for the parable right from the beginning. Uh, chapter 18, verses 9 through 10 says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men walked up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We see the characters for the story right there from the beginning. You've got the Pharisee, the tax collector, and you also see the audience uh, that, that this is going to, which was most likely a group of Pharisees themselves, um, as he refers to them as to some who are confident of their own righteousness. You just have to love how Jesus does that um, in so many of the parables. The audience that he's talking to are the villains he creates for the parable and story. Uh, you know, you got to love that, that confrontation. As they probably, you know, who knows how this started, um, but you know, the story-wise. But, you know, he's telling them this story, which they're going to learn from, and they ultimately end up being the villains uh, in, the, in the very story they're hearing in front of them. In, in chapter 18, verse 11, it says, the Pharisee, stood up and prayed to, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. I, you know, I care about you guys, each of you. And if you try and pull off a prayer like that in today's context, in today's church, standing up and doing that, it's not going to go over well. I'll just warn you right now. You will be rebuked, not just behind your back, but probably to your face by your friends. Um, It's just not going to work out. I'm just amazed, you know, when you look at that, when you look in in scripture that uh, in today's context, that just seems so out of place that somebody would actually do that, that they would that the Pharisee prayed in such a way that lifted himself out up while, you know, pushing down the person next to him. You know, if you take a look at their culture, though, that was kind of, there's a, to a degree, some of that did happen. It may not have been as shocking to them. Um, it, you know, it's kind of acceptable within their culture to pray, to thank God for the righteousness, for your own personal righteousness, that you wouldn't take credit for it. Now, obviously, where he crossed the line was when he personalized that and, you know, put down the person next to him in exchange, uh, in addition to thanking God for that righteousness that he had. Chapter 18, verse 12 says, I, f- I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of what I get. Again, you try and do this in today's culture, it's not going not gonna to end well. People will speak about you sarcastically and you probably will be mocked. That's just how it's going to go. But contextually, again, th- this, there was nothing that he was saying that wasn't true. You know, the Pharisees were, were known, some of them were known to fast twice a week and to give up to 20% through multiple tithes. Um, of what they had uh, to the church. You know, the, the issue with them was never really the zeal that they had in, in, following, um, in following God. It was the fact that it was just misdirected. Um, you, can see, you can see, you know, even in, in this chapter and section here, how, you know, as, as he's praying, he's missing the mark completely. Um, you know, Jesus said the, the second greatest commandment of all was to love, thy na- love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm pretty sure that as he's praying here, his heart was not in step with that uh, commandment, that he was not properly loving his neighbor um, as he's almost making light and saying that he's better than him, right? So you see, for all the efforts that the Pharisees put forth there to, to follow the Old Testament law, they still fell far short. And kind of like we all do. You know, every day, 
Um, but you see, when, when we trust in our own efforts, our own external efforts to think that we can work our way through um, activity to being forgiven, being clean, it just doesn't work. That's not how, that's not how it's set up. The Pharisee in this story saw, kind of saw God, or saw God probably like some kind of professor almost that was assigning grades and, and kind of assumed that, well, I'm certainly going to get an A. I'm going to get an A in this class of holiness because look at this. Look at this class. I'm way better than any of these guys, so surely he'll give me an A. But God's not a professor. He's a, you know, he issues grace um, as we come to him and we ask for that forgiveness. He cleanses us when our hearts are right and when we truly uh, seek after him. It's not works-based. It's not based on effort. And it's certainly not based on how, you know, class ranking, how we stack up with, with everybody else. Now, I don't want to forget that, you know, the, the, the Pharisee was at the temple praying. I mean, he saw, you know, he understood he had, there was a need to go there to communicate with God. Because um, that's what the Old Testament instructed. That much is admirable. However, we see his efforts were ultimately uh, corrupt, you know. We see that through this, really, he was, it seemed as though he was trying to exalt himself, probably, um, exalt himself higher through his words and, and less about exalting God. It could very well be, you know, that the Pharisee didn't even realize that he was doing something wrong. Uh, you know, he was a part of a very influential, powerful culture, um, a group with the Pharisees were. And it was kind of, you know, the norm for them to act this way. So it may not be that he's, he was saying it. He was even aware of, like, how this was coming off, um, that, it was, that he was, you know, as, as Jesus saw it, in sin uh, through his actions. God really kind of used this. You know, I, I see Jesus using this parable almost as this, as this arrow shot across the bow, directed right at the, the, the foundation of the Pharisee culture. He wasn't so much, this parable's not really here so much to say, you know, here's an example of this one guy and the one way he prayed. And, you know, it's not a singular thing. He's really trying to, with this parable, disrupt the Pharisee, uh, the Pharisaical culture there um, to show them that, guys, you're a little bit off here. I like your, you know, I like your efforts, but your focus and, and what you're really based on here of this self-exaltation um, is not going to work. Um, Jesus had to do, uh, Jesus kind of used this, the, the prayer uh, of this pride-ridden Pharisee um, to kind of bring that to light. He wanted to show them, uh, the, Pharise- the group, the Pharisees, and even show us today uh, that his house uh, is not going to be built on, built on uh, persons like this, full of pride. He had to show that in that culture because um, this house that I refer to Christianity, was, it wasn't even built yet in a technical sense. He had not yet died. He had to show them back then, um, just as he shows us today, that uh, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are pure when we come to him um, with humility and not with some display of, you know, how great we are. So, For all the ways that the Pharisee presented himself as this holy, holy person, um, this exemplary person, uh, the tax collector was not all of those things. So just as Derek set it up so perfectly, total opposite end of the spectrum, the tax collector. This guy works for the Roman Empire. And so um, 
we're in this this time period where the Roman Empire is actually experiencing immense growth, and somebody has to pay for that, right? Um, so that's passed on through the the taxes that were um, just handed down in that day. It's kind of not like our tax system today, right? So our government trusts us to by April fifteenth every year mail in our taxes, and you know hopefully we're getting money back. But uh, if we have to pay taxes at that point, then they're trusting us to do so um, via mail correspondence. But that's not at all the case with these tax collectors, right? So the tax collectors for Rome were actually appointed to um, the different provinces of the Roman Empire. And so the tax collector would have been very much a part of the town and would have probably known everyone there. Um, They were face-to-face tax collectors. So it wasn't just like we have sales tax, property tax, Income tax, that's a lot of taxes that we have. Um, but there were actually more taxes uh, on these folks. Everything could be taxed. So, I mean, all of those things that we have, the, the income tax and, and property tax kind of thing, those were in place, but um, they could make up taxes on the fly. So the tax collector could be walking down the street and be like, uh, so Derek, notice you got a new chicken last week going to need $5 on that, like constantly just making things up as they go along. The, the tax collectors were given kind of this freedom that's a little bit scary to actually set the rates. So Rome would give them this amount that to be paying in as the tax collector. And so above and beyond that is actually what they would make. So the tax collector would say, hey, I want to make this much money, so I'm going to set the tax rate that high. And they made the money that way. So they would were basically encouraged by Rome to, to be jacking up their, their rates so that they would make the money. It gave the opportunity for that greed um, to come in. So at best tax collector would have been seen in that culture as a a liar or a cheat. Um, Most likely, the the image that they had was actually that of an extortionist, um, even a traitor. This person was still Jewish. I mean, they're very much a part of the Jewish culture and um, were Jew in their heritage. And so, um, all right, I'm getting the signal to trade mics with my friend Eric. Thank you, sir. Let's see if this goes back in here. All right, is that better? Okay, thank you. Beautiful sound people in the back. You're amazing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, extortionist traders. Jewish guy working for the Roman Empire, not liked by the other Jewish folks um, because they were, were obviously collecting the taxes from them. So what is what is somebody that, that maybe comes to mind when you think of extortionist or, or traitor? What is something that comes to mind for you? Is there a person that comes to mind? Maybe as of uh, recent history of Bernie Madoff or um, Rod Blagojevich. Maybe. If you're having trouble coming up with that image in your mind, just let's say Tyler Zeller put on a Duke jersey and charge people to watch him play? I don't know. Um, Let's hope that never, ever happens. (laughs) But it's that picture, right? This Somebody who has gone far beyond, like, what um, 
yeah, just far beyond what the the culture would allow in terms of kind of going over to the other side, becoming almost in a sense Roman because of his employment with the Roman Empire. So the tax collector, though, finds himself in the temple. And um, let's just take just a second to look at, at his actual prayer. In verse 13, it says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. How does this start? Jesus is telling this story. It doesn't start with, with the tax collector's words, does it? It starts with his location, starts with his posture, right? Why might that be important? If he were here today, he would probably be back over there in that dark corner and nobody would even know he's here. Just kind of hidden away, um, not even feeling, feeling worthy to be a part of, of worship that day. So the posture being such a, a key thing that Jesus brings out, where in contrast to the Pharisee who would have been who would have been up front with, you know, hands held high and praying very boldly and boisterously, I imagine. Um, The tax collector is, again, that opposite. Just unseen, unheard, and just simply crying out. His words are very, very simple. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Very simple, nothing elaborate. Um, but it's it's just super, um, I guess, raw might be the word. Like he's just laying it all out there, saying, God, have mercy on me. He finds himself just pouring himself out, desperate, broken, knowing that he is in need of God. We might look at this and, and recall a, a verse that Jesus actually spoke in, in Matthew that it says, for I tell you, unless the righteousness, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That kind of paints this picture of, okay, the tax collector doesn't have a chance, right? Uh, in fact, we don't have a chance. If the Pharisee who gives this image of um, having it all together and um, just being so committed to keeping up the law, If that's what we've got to do, then we don't have a chance. But this word righteousness actually doesn't really have to do with goodness. doesn't really have to do with doing right things. But it's completely wrapped up in this relationship with God. Righteousness is actually meaning um, right relationship with God in this this sense. And so the Pharisee actually is, is totally out of relationship with God because he is is about his own gain what can he get from this but we see the the tax collector completely pouring himself out as Derek said the the audience is gathered around probably the the Pharisees were there um and they're just waiting to hear where Jesus is going with this right they're like um okay so we're getting called out and have no idea uh how this is going to end but the the anticipation and probably probably not just the Pharisees like that was obviously Jesus's um, uh, immediate audience but it was pretty common you know that Jesus was in a crowd of people and so probably there were plenty of people within earshot of of Jesus speaking this parable and so the expectation would have been 
that the Pharisee, um, the Pharisee was actually the one who was going to be named as, as blameless and holy, especially their, their own expectation being that. Um, but Jesus obviously turns it upside down. And Jesus says, who the, the tax collector is the one who goes, goes home justified. Now, this word justified is, is a word that's is a legal term to actually mean somebody who um, is found in the right. Somebody who um, is free of, of the charges against them. And so the tax collector is not the one to be expected to be that one who is, who is justified. But the Pharisee would be that, that expected person. So Jesus turns it upside down. And in, in doing so, obviously leaves the Pharisees a little bit ticked. Um, and we know they're plotting to kill him all along. Um, so the Pharisees are, are obviously quite upset about this. But think about the other people who may have been in earshot of what Jesus just said. That it's, that it's the tax collector who goes home justified. The other people around, obviously the, the common everyday people, but also the, the other tax collectors, prostitutes, the people who we know were hanging out with Jesus. And so they hear this being said. And all of a sudden there is this new hope, this new hope that, can, that they can truly be righteous, that they can be in a right relationship with God, which is not at all something that, that would ever have been said of prostitutes and tax collectors. They're the people farthest from a relationship with God. But Jesus turns it upside down and says, this man, the tax collector, is the one who leaves justified. We have this phrase around here at Love Chapel Hill, that love is the great reversal. And so if you've been with us, you know that, you know what that means. Um, but so the expectation being turned upside down is, is that love at work, love being the great reversal. But it not only turns that expectation upside down of, of who um, is in the right relationship with God, it turns everything upside down. When Jesus himself, love himself, enters the picture, it shifts everything. And so we see in, um, see in verse 14, it says, I tell you, this man is justified before God, the tax collector. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. When we talk about the great reversal. We talk about this V pattern. And so the, the human nature um, pattern of the V is really an upside down V. We'll go this way. I'm not throwing any signs or anything, but, uh, so the upside down V, um, just signifying the way of, of humanity. I mean, we see it all the way back in the garden at the time of the fall, Adam and Eve are, are tempted and tried with this, this aspiration basically to become like God. And so it's this idea that we can attain on our own somehow the greatness of God. And so it's just the, the constant working and, and trying to do better, be the best that you can be, do whatever you have to do to get ahead. That mentality that makes us work to achieve high things. But what do we know happens every single time? There's a fall. And so our humanness fails us every single time. And so that doesn't get us into a right relationship with God. But we come and see Jesus and his pattern of living, the the um, 
yeah, we love this sign around here. So the V pattern is that Jesus himself comes down from heaven to live among us. He humbles himself even to the point of death on a cross. And in doing so, he is then exalted by God to the highest place in the heavenly realms. And so that, that is the great reversal that we, we are living, that we humble ourselves, make ourselves less so that he can raise us up. We submit before him in the same way that this tax collector does, laying himself out, fully surrendered, saying, God, I am in need of you, in desperate need of you. And because the great reversal, love turns everything upside down. It's not only the tax collector who has this new hope, but even the Pharisee has the same hope. God always gives the opportunity to repent. So even the Pharisee is not cast out. You're never too far for God to love you. You're never too far out. God always, always draws us back. And perhaps that greatest hope, we see Jesus calls the disciples, the ones who will lead the earliest church. In that number, in the 12, we have Matthew, who's a tax collector. And we have Paul, who's a Pharisee. We see these folks being restored. It gives gives us hope to see that even in the farthest away places in the relationship with God, he's able to restore them. And so this parable begs of us. It begs of us to ask the question, which one are we? Do we find ourselves more like the Pharisee? Do we find ourselves more like the tax collector? Are we overly confident? Have we found our righteousness on our own? Is it something that we've worked for? Is it something that we've attained? Or are we crying out daily saying, God, I am just in need of who you are? It's hard to ask that question sometimes because I can look back at the past week and see my own pharisaical ways. But God constantly gives us opportunity to come back to him, to be in right relationship. Whether we've been walking with Christ for three days or 30 years, we're still in need of him. Regardless of how far we've come, it's not been on our own. And so it's a matter of, of just humbling ourselves to say it's, it's God and God alone that can transform our hearts. Think of, of David, actually, in a prayer that he prayed and kind of asking this, this same question. How, how am I living? Am I living like the Pharisee? Am I living surrendered? And King David, in Psalm 139, prays, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. As we reflect, as we, as we go from this place thinking about just how we are living, how, um, how we relate to the Pharisee or the, the tax collector, this is just a great prayer to be, be praying in our own hearts. God, search me and know me. Just reveal those things that are that are not of you, that separate me from you. 
So we just want to go, go today knowing that we are invited to lay ourselves down, to lay our lives down, and humbly, um, humbly just pray that same prayer that the tax collector did. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So God, as, as we go from this place, God, just take our hearts, God, and just open them to what you want to say to us just to reveal to us where we are in our relationship with you. Sometimes that's a tough reality. But God, we just, we pray this prayer that David prayed, that you would search us and know us, know our hearts, know every thought. God, just reveal anything in us that is keeping us, keeping us apart from you, that is a barrier in our relationship with you. So God, we just, just invite you to walk with us through this week. Show us how we can can submit and humble ourselves. God, and just love the people around us. We love you, and we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.